Let us ask the Lord to give the full power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, send your spirit of righteousness. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. You know, this subject has been presented many occasions under the title Righteousness by Faith. Many of those presentations were very interesting. In fact, the history of the Christian Church has seen three times this subject coming up. Uh, Once in the days of Paul, and that was in the early church, to the Romans, the message to the Romans, and it was not always pleasantly accepted. The next experience with righteousness by faith was during the Reformation. And there was the conflict between the established Catholic Church and the reformers within the church. And they had difficulty in accepting what the church was teaching there in regards to righteousness by faith in Christ. Because that was absent, it was only righteousness and judgment and justification, but not righteousness by faith in Christ. And the next thing, when it appears again on the horizon, was in our church about 40 years after the beginning of our church in 1888. 44 years after 1844. And again, there were strong discussions, heavily disagreements, and that is not what I wanted to present today. I think we haven't had enough disagreements. But what I think I like to present is how this righteousness, this righteousness by faith, can be experienced. You know, the intellectual concept, I'm sure that here are a number of people who can explain it. Can I see the hands of some who would like to venture out in explaining it? Why? I don't see any hands. I wouldn't ask you to come here to the pulpit and give us lecture on this. Not at all. But keep in mind here that the intellectual presentation, the intellectual understanding doesn't make it. You get dry discussions, fights, and if you have time and you want to see what took place in 1888. In 1988, the General Conference White Estate collected all the manuscripts and letters in which Ellen Light has mentioned the term 1888 and righteousness. And they came with four compilations of over 1,800 pages. So you see, there was lots of things going on. 
But uh, I read it because I was asked to teach this subject. And, uh, you know, it was not the most pleasant material. I digested it. I glimpsed, I glanced the most beautiful things. But now I like to summarize my experience and uh, my personal experience in the next half an hour. The importance of this subject was already pointed out by Jesus, who said in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's a beautiful promise. Now the question is, does this fit your experience? Because in order to be filled with this, what needs to be happening? You need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the question is, how many of us, and I don't even want to see hands, are hungering and thirsting for righteousness? See, that is something totally different experience. And yet, this is what the Lord said in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, a little later on, he recommends to list priorities in your life. And one of the priorities is, seek first the kingdom of God. And we know this text. But that was not the end. The end of this text is, and his righteousness. And the question is, are we seeking first with the kingdom the righteousness. Are we hungering and thirsting? And if we don't, we will never be filled. So what are we going to do about it? Friends, the biblical teaching of righteousness by faith in Christ affects the experience of the believer in three areas. And I'd like to explain those things. In the past, in the present and in the future. And for you, of course, it is important to know the present. But without the past, you will never experience the present. So keep that in mind. And so let us now try to analyze this here. The experience about righteousness by faith in Christ in the past. It's all past tense. So what is going to happen? What are now the priorities? How can you experience in the past? I said, you know, it's too late, too late. Not too late. Because if you've never experienced it, it's been too for you to begin right now. And make this a part of your past experience. And it starts here with repentance. Now, we don't think generally, if we talk about righteousness by faith, that we talk about repentance. But this is the prerequisite to experience it. So what is it? Genuine repentance produces godly sorrow. It results in a radical change in attitude towards God and sin. So keep in mind this 
it, you know, now you may understand probably, well, when Jesus started to preach, what generally did he say? Repent and be baptized. Repent, repent, repent. Because without repentance, you will never experience righteousness by faith. God's Spirit convict those who receive Him of the seriousness of sin by bringing them to a sense of God's righteousness and their own lost condition. And you find this in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Now I would invite you to turn to that text. And uh, I frequently use the New King James, but this time I don't. Because very few Bibles have the definition that the spirit of prophecy uses over and over again that really brings a certain special experience. So, uh, so I'm re reading then for the King James, the Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten. And see, Paul says here, "For godly sorrow." worketh repentance to salvation. <coughs> so what does it need to have? Godly sorrow. And it is only when we have godly sorrow, it goes to repentance. And then it says here, not only this, Repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Now, this is basically one of the literal translations here. Now, why is this so important? Because what happened is what we experience, like many of our Catholic friends do also. They go to the priest, they confess one thing, and what happened next week? come back, confess the same thing, over and over again. And they don't worry about it because the priest tells you what to do. And you do a number of penitents, and then it is over. And you know that next week you can do it again. No, friends. True repentance is preceded by godly sorrow. You have to be deeply sorry for this. And at the same time, what does it say here? Not to be repented of. So in other words, you don't repeat this all the time. Now, of course, the Bible has always a way out that if you fail, there's hope. Because in 1 John, 2nd chapter, you know, if anybody sins, what happened then? You know, there is forgiveness. But... Is there forgiveness if you commit this sin and you do it all the time? That is not godless sorrow. <laughs> it's worldly sorrow. And the text says worldly sorrow results into what? Death. Very sad. You know, God is very patient with us. And no matter what you do, he is very patient. But there comes an end to it. Because you don't have truly godly sorrow. And so here then, if you have godly sorrow, there is a radical change in your attitude towards what? 
towards God and sin. You see, the problem of sinning is that uh, we don't see the seriousness of it. But if we see the seriousness of sinning and what it does, what it does to Christ, you know, every time when we sin, what does happen? Christ in the heavenly sanctuary has to shed his blood again. It's not in the Mass, though in heaven. It is applying his blood again to your sin. And that creates also sorrow in the heart of Christ. Are you with me? You know, that's very, very important. Do we want to hurt Jesus? Are we really taking his sacrifice serious? God's pardons is not only providing forgiveness for sins, but reclaims from sin. It's very important. Reclaiming is that you leave sin behind. In God's power, not your power. Your power doesn't help you at all. And so repentance, the Bible says in Acts 5.31, it's a gift of God. Now you say, you know, that's interesting. I'm calling to repentance and it's a gift. So how do I get it? How do you get this gift? Is it being given no matter what? Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to it. You see how beautiful it is? So in other words, what is available to us? Prayer. It's through prayer. Persistent prayer. Important prayer. Importunum. Never give up. Calling upon the Lord. Give us hunger. And what? Thirst. For righteousness. You know, that is the only thing that, that you can get. The change. A radical change. A radical change. Here is the motivation for repentance. Here is the best motivation to achieve righteousness. Because what Christ accomplished provided righteousness as a gift. What do you think about it? But why was he there? Is it you? Why was he there? And as your finger points at his sacrifice, four points to you. Four fingers. Why? Because of your sin. Your sin. There would be no future for you. No future eternal life. No future eternity. Was it not for the cross? Of Christ. And that cross brings us the goodness of God. It leads you to repentance. You know, God gave His only begotten Son. For what? The goodness of God to rescue you. How many people in this church were born outside of the Adventist faith? Can I see the hands? Quite a few. 
So am I, outside of the faith. But what happened? What did God do? He reaches out to Egypt, spiritual Egypt. He reaches out to where? Lord, please help the little one. And may his grace be merciful. And so here, so God reaches out to us. We're going outside of the fold in Babylon. And through his goodness, he brought us back into the church. Now, what about you who have been growing up in the church? You know, today we read statistics of Adventist young people. And what happened to them? They left. Can you not praise the Lord that you're still in the church? So God's goodness prevented you from leaving the church because of the goodness of Jesus. And so the goodness of Jesus is enormous, reaching out to us and giving his life, his goodness. Friends, that is the greatest motivation for repentance. And so as a result of repentance, because that is a prerequisite, we get now justification. Now that's a difficult word. And we don't like to hear some of those words, justification, sanctification. We may not even know how to explain it. You know, a number of years ago, I decided to have a look at the youth instructor. And I look at the youth instructor. It appeared in the early 50s. And one of the journals for the teenagers, you know, from 10 to 20 or whatever. And to my great surprise, I noticed that in the articles, and Ellen White wrote articles in every paper. And the articles that she wrote were not full of stories. They were full of statements like justification, sanctification, perfection, all of those things. I said, poor kids, I mean, you know, all those difficult things and whatever, you know, they never survive. But Elamite was strong and kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. And I read those articles and I said, yes, this is not only for the adults, for everyone. And it is so simple. And I try to explain now how simple it is. And therefore, if you understand the simplicity of those difficult texts that theologians have to struggle for years and years and years, it is not for us. No, it is simple. Here it is. In general, justification is used theologically. It's a divine act by which God declares a repentant sinner righteous or regard him as righteous. And that you find it in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. But really, in simple words, it looks at you just as if I have never sinned. Now that's marvelous, isn't it? Just look at your past. If you never sinned. And so the basis for this justification is not our obedience, but Christ's. For through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, 
by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Romans 5, 18 and 19. You see? One righteous act, one man's obedience. And that justifies you. You are declared just, not anymore a sinner. Now, what is the role of faith and works? And then we know that Paul points to Abraham. Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness before he was circumcised. Romans 4, 9 and 10. So he was righteous before he really started to act, before he actually entered into the covenant relationship. So how is this? What is then the role of works? Works are the response of thankfulness to Christ's saving grace. Now how, how did Abraham experience this? How did he qualify? You know, he lived in Babylon, in Ur, you know, pagan country, lots of apostasy. And so what did God do? God looked and he saw that Abraham seemed to be the best man. And he called upon Abraham to do what? To go out. Leave his nice environment, nice families, and go where? Oh, yes. And the Lord pointed him a dream and country. Beautiful or whatever. And so he went there. Did he ever live in a beautiful country? He, friends, was living in tents. Each one of us has a better home than Abraham. And it's all long life. And those people live long, you know, I mean, Abraham in, in the hundreds. For a long time, intense. Intense, yes, intense. And why did he do it? Because he believed God. And by faith, he went and received the inheritance. And so, friends, the experience of justification, how is this? Justification is by faith in Christ. His righteousness is imputed, and that's a difficult word, it means ascribed or accredited to us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. And it brings full and complete pardon. And we didn't do anything by our own works. We get it free. Experience of justification, you find it in Zechariah, the vision in Zechariah chapter 3. And you know about Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And there was Satan accusing him. And was Satan right? Oh, yes. How was Joshua dressed? In filthy clothes. Filthy. So, what did the angel of the Lord say? He forgave him. The archangel of the exchange of clothes in the biblical doctrine of justification is experiencing forgiveness. But not only forgiveness, but also purification. What did the angel of the Lord do? Did he cover him with new clothes? No. 
He took away the filthy clothes, the filthy rags, and then clothed him with the purity of the gospel. Isn't it beautiful? So it is an exchange here, justification. Justification, you made this commitment to Christ. And there it is. Justification ended in sanctification. True repentance and justification lead to sanctification. See Romans 6, verse 6 to 8. So the steps are repentance, justification, and the next one is sanctification. Justification and sanctification are closely related to righteousness. They are distinct but never separate. They are designed on two phases of salvation, two dimensions of righteousness. Justification is what God does for us, and while sanctification is what God does in us. So, justification, you don't contribute except the repentance, and the repentance is a free gift. So what God does for you, outside of you, he also, through providential workings, he all work outside of you to create an environment that makes it right for repentance. While sanctification, he works in you. And so when he works in you, what will that do? That will affect what? Actions outside of you. So in other words, when God works in you, there will be fruits. And the fruit will inevitably be the what? What God is doing in you. What he has done with you. In fact, neither justification nor sanctification result in meritorious works. Both are solely due to Christ's grace and righteousness. But when God works in you, when Christ works in you, it is evident that you see it in the fruits. You cannot hide it. It's impossible because Christ cannot be hid under a bushel. It cannot be. Otherwise it is not light. Are you with me? It's inevitable. You will see it. Again here, righteousness by which we are justified is imputed, accredited. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted, is shared. And so the first is our title to heaven, and the second is our fitness for heaven. And the title will never help only in selling your car. We are selling our car, one of our cars. And don't ask me about it on the Sabbath. But, there it is, we have the title. But only if the car is fit, does it get a buyer. You see? And so the second then is our fitness. It needs to work. And when Christ gives us the impartation of righteousness, then it must work. Otherwise, it is, what is it? The sorrow of the world produces death. It doesn't fit heaven. 
but you don't do it yourself. It is all again a gift. All again Christ's righteousness that is provided for you. Isn't it marvelous? We have a fantastic God, friends. Result of justification, there are three phases the Bible presents. One is the accomplished act in the believer's past. One is the process in the believer's present experience. And finally, it is the final result of the believer's experience in Christ's return. And so we have now been dealing with the past. So what is it now here? As to the believer's past, at the moment of justification, the believer is also sanctified. You cannot be declared free from sin unless it goes parallel to sanctification. And that is what many people don't forget. They said, okay, now we are baptized, now we begin. No, you are already there. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, he or she has become a saint. There's nothing bad with that. thing. They are not the Catholics that have only the access to saints. No, God's people become saints, become holy. In that point, the new believer is redeemed and belong fully to God. Praise the Lord. What do you say? Ah. Now, those steps, if you understand those steps of repentance, justification and sanctification, that gives us assurance of salvation. You know, many people have no assurance of salvation. Why? We don't know how the dynamics of heaven work. And Satan can deceive you. Justification brings also the assurance of believers' re-acceptance. No matter how sinful one's past life, God pardons all sins. And we are no longer under the condemnation and curse of the law. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, 7. Isn't it beautiful? Beautiful. Because we are justified, we at the same time are also sanctified. And then the beginning of a new life, a new victorious life. The realization that the Savior's blood covers our sinful past, brings healing to body, soul, and mind. New relationship with Christ brings with it the gift of eternal life. John affirms clearly, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. 1 John 5, 12. The formula is simple, friends. But are you willing to seek, to knock, to call? That is the question. Our past sins has been cared for through the indwelling Spirit. And we can enjoy the blessings of salvation. And maybe one of the problems is that we may not have an, the indwelling spirit. You know, some of the people in our churches, oh, you know, the Holy Spirit oh, is just a spirit. You know, I don't understand. I, don't, I understand Jesus. I understand God, but not the Holy Spirit. So therefore, what you do is eliminating a very important part of your victorious life. 
Do you understand the nature of God? Do you understand fully the nature of Christ? So if you don't fully understand God's beginning and ending and how this is it, why doubt this about the Holy Spirit? You know, we all have to believe by faith. You have to believe the existence of God. And you see it works. So why not profit of the indwelling of the Spirit? Because if you have that, then you can enjoy all the blessings of salvation right now. And so I think that is one of the problems of the people. They want to know more and more and more. And remember that throughout eternity you will be learning and learning and learning. And never be finished with learning. So that's important. So now we come to the point of the experience of righteousness by faith in Christ. So the past is being taken for. No more guilt. Everything is finished. We are children of God, adopted. And now we are beginning the life of Christ, with Christ. Through Christ's blood, bringing purification, justification and sanctification, the believer is what? A new creation. The old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You believe that? If you believe that, your life will be different. Call to sanctification by faith. Salvation, in, salvation includes living a sanctified life on the basis of what Christ has accomplished through his atoning sacrifice at the cross. Paul appeals to the believer to live the consecrated to, it, to ethical holiness and moral conduct. That is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. To enable them to experience sanctification, God gives the believer what? The spirit of holiness. Romans 1, verse 4. Spirit-filled believers do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8, verse 1. Uh, Romans 8 verse 1 and 8 verse 4. And so here now we walk according to the Spirit. And again, just accept the promise of the Bible, how to walk according to the Spirit and call upon the Lord. You get an, an internal change. At the second advent, we will become changed physically. This corruption, mortal body, will put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 to 54. However, our sinful characters must undergone a deformation into the mind of Christ in preparation for the second coming. It's not when the second coming, they give us the mind of Christ. No, today, when we walk with him, our characters undergo a transformation into the mind of Christ. That is what Philippians says. Involvement of Christ in the Holy Spirit. As we meditate on Christ's life, the Holy Spirit restores the physical, mental, and spiritual faculties. Titus 3, verse 5. So it is a matter of reflecting upon Christ, meditating on Christ every day, that then the Holy Spirit works. How? 
I don't know. But he does. If I reflect on Christ and his actions, then I wish I had those things also in my life. If I don't see it, I call upon the Lord and say, please shape my mind, shape my heart, so that I may walk in your path. And then when we walk in this path, other people see what God is doing in us. The Holy Spirit work involves revealing Christ and restoring us into Christ's image. Romans 8, verse 1 to 10. And you know what is very, very interesting here. Our church has introduced many years ago a reading, a Bible reading, so that every member reads one chapter. And we, my wife and I, are on this chapter, on reading this chapter already for three years. And every day we read one Bible Bible chapter together, not alone. We have our private devotion, but together. And then the Holy Spirit imbues our family of walking with Christ. Beautiful, beautiful. And then you grow together. Not husband goes in one way and husband wife another way. No, you grow together and you pray together and ask the Lord every day to guide you together. And then you no need to worry about looking for a divorce. No. Because the Lord is cementing your life together. Gets better and better the older you get, the more wrinkles you have. But the character becomes more beautiful. And that's what counts, friends. The Lord has given you the beautiful gift in your life and you walk with that wife throughout eternity. Beautiful. And it gets better the older you get. Believe me. Ask my wife. <laughs> Partaking of the divine nature, that is a key element of what we have to do. Christ exceeding great and precious promises pledges the divine power to complete the transformation of our characters. 2 Peter 1, verse 4. So here, here are tremendous, exceeding great promises. There are power in the promises. And those promises, if we claim those, transform us. And how does it do it? It's Peter's steps letter. This access to divine power allows us, you see, keep in mind, the, the focus is not my power, but the divine power. And it gives, adds to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Second Peter 1, verse 5-7. So we don't start out immediately with loving and we said we, we have the love. No, the love is made up of faith, virtue, that are the good behavior, uh, perseverance, self-control, godliness, goodly kindness, and love. That is how Peter says the Christians will walk. They will walk in that life. Only through Christ. As the Spirit, Holy Spirit enables us divine, the divine Christ to partake of the human nature, so the Spirit enables us to partake of the divine character 
treed. So it is an exchange of... Christ came down here to take up his spirit, our human nature, but then he gives the opportunity through his divine power to partake of the divine nature, in fact, the divine characteristics. So by daily reflecting upon those things, our lives become more and more powerful. This appropriation to the divine nature renews the inner person, making us Christ-like, though on a different level. Whereas Christ became human, the believer doesn't become divine, rather they become God-like in character. And it's only by reflecting and meditating. Here's the dynamic process. Sanctification is progressive. By prayer and study of the word, we constantly grow in fellowship with God. If we don't study daily, we don't grow daily. Mere intellectual understanding of the plan of salvation will not suffice. John says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, Christ reveals, you have no life in you. John 6, verse 53 to 56. Is there something we have no life in us? That was the Jewish experience, remember? When Christ did the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000, they came to him and wanted to make him king. And Christ says, no, I'm not that king. But unless you eat and drink the flesh and the Son of Man, drink his blood, you can. And what did the Jews do? They turned around and left him because they were not interested in that kind of relationship. But friends, that is the kind of relationship and it is only by daily meditating. And if you don't daily meditate, you don't transform. And then when the Lord comes, you will be disappointed. Friends, there is power in the word. You believe that? Righteousness only in Christ. Apart from Christ, human beings cannot obtain righteousness. He who abides in me and I in him, he says, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Here it is. It is in Christ who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Here it is. All the wisdom, all the righteousness, all the sanctification, full redemption is all in Christ. And we have only to ask. And only to ask, but to meditate upon him. And this meditation, friends, will transform. Now, if you are not interested in transformation, there is the world. But if you look for an eternal life with Christ, eternal life with your loved ones, that's the only way possible. And you become more and more like Christ. And that gives you also daily justification. Justification is not just in the beginning, in the past. No. Daily, all believers who are living the Spirit-filled, sanctified life, Christ possessed, have a continuing need for daily justification. Christ bestowed. We need this because of conscience transgressions and because of errors we may un commit unwittingly. Realizing the sinfulness 
of the human heart, David requested forgiveness for his what? Hidden fault. Psalm 19, verse 12. Jeremiah, verse 17, verse 9. Speaking specifically on the sins of believers, God assured us that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, verse 1. But the idea is that we overcome those sinful behavior. And he gives all power is given, Jesus says, to me in heaven and on earth. It's there. Why not accept this as a free gift? And so it is daily justification, daily repentance, daily sanctification. All those things are on a daily basis. And finally here, the righteous by faith in the future. Glorification and sanctification. The indwelling of Christ in our hearts is one of the conditions for future salvation. The glorification of our mortal bodies, Christ in you, Paul says, is the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. What do you think? Christ in you. Not Christ outside of you. No, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Paul explains, if the spirit of him who raises Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to you mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 6, 11. And so here then, glorification and perfection, sanctification, is a lifelong process. Perfection now is only in Christ, but ultimate, all comprehensive transformation of our life into the image of God will take place. When? At the second advent. Isn't it a marvelous offer that Christ gives? This daily experience. And it is now my question. Who would like to experience this daily outward of Christ's righteousness? Your daily justification, your daily repentance. This is what Paul says, I doubt daily. So is it not possible? The question is, are you willing? And those who want to make a covenant with the Lord, to make this on a daily basis, may I see the hands. Amen, amen, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us, what you're willing to do, and the eternity that is before us. What a privilege what we have, friends. We are the most blessed people on the face of the earth. And now, Father, when we have made a covenant with you in regard to those things, help us that Satan will not under, undermine us. Help us to go forward in power and help us to experience in this church a revival and a reformation. Is my prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.